0: Hello, everyone, and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is John Darcy. I'm the Managing Director of SALT, which is a global thought leadership forum focused on finance, technology, and public policy. SALT Talks are a digital interview series with leading investors, creators, and thinkers. And our goal on these talks is the same as our goal at our SALT conferences, which is to provide a window into the mind of subject matter experts as well as provide a platform for what we think are the biggest and most important ideas that are shaping the future. And we're very excited today to bring you a special salt talk with Dr. Mark Epstein. Uh, Dr. Epstein is a psychiatrist in private practice in New York City and the author of several books about the interface uh, and the intersection of Buddhism and psychotherapy, including advice not given, the trauma of everyday life, and thoughts without a thinker, as well as going to pieces without falling apart. Uh, Receive his undergraduate and medical degrees from Harvard University, uh, where our co-host today, Anthony Scaramucci, uh, also went to law school. Definitely not quite as centered or as enlightened as Dr. Epstein, uh, but Anthony does have some redeeming qualities, so so I won't be too hard on him. Uh, hosting today's talk, again, Anthony you're gonna
1: Scaramucci. I, you're going to mention I got fired from the White House? <laughs> I wasn't going to go into that yeah. for Did this I? one, but yeah, we can. It's okay. Ma- Ma- Mark is the only person on planet Earth who doesn't know I got fired from the White House. You can mention it to him.
0: I figured we could both use today as sort of a therapy session for ourselves uh, to be selfish about today's today's recording. Um, but Anthony, as you probably know if you're watching the show, is the founder and managing partner of Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investment firm, as well as the founder and chairman of SALT. Uh, so with that, I'll let Anthony start, and I'll chime in uh, with some questions here and there as well, Dr. Epstein.
1: Well, let's hold up the book, Dr. Epstein. It's a phenomenal tome. Uh, the Zen of Therapy, Uncovering a Hidden Kindness in Life. you got great case studies in here, but lots of Eastern and Western philosophical tenets, which I'd like to address. But uh, I think it was Emerson. He said, most men live their lives in quiet desperation. We both know the quote. And probably people are basically more or less focused on survival more than anything else, they're not really reaching an actualization or a, even a spiritualization. They're just really trying to get through the day. Um, how does Buddhism, therapy, spirituality, how does it help people make a transition into something that's more sublime or a transcending moment into something more sublime?
2: Well, as as I think you know, Anthony, I've been like deeply influenced by Buddhist. Uh, Buddhist thought, Buddhist psychology, Buddhist meditation, even before I did all my training to be a Western psychiatrist. So one of the things that got me about Buddhism right from the start was that the Buddha, in his outline of his psychological teachings, which are called the Four Noble Truths, he said something very similar to that quote that you just began with. Uh, He said that people's lives are tinged with a sense of pervasive, unsatisfactoriness. He used the word dukkha, uh, which is generally translated as suffering, which is like overdoing it, you know, because he didn't, he didn't deny that there was great pleasure and joy and satisfaction and fulfillment in a regular life. But he said all of that is shadowed by the sense of impermanence, by the knowledge that we're going to die, we're going to get sick, we're going to get old, we're going to be separated from the people we love and that we're sitting on a on an uncomfortable set of feelings you know including our own rage uh, and his word dukkha that that um, uh, I'm saying means like uh, unsatisfactoriness if you take the word apart it actually means hard to face Ka is face and dukkha is hard to face and he had a word sukha which is like sweet to face you know that whole aspect of things but he he said that that tendency to look away from the things that are hard to face is what keeps us actually uh, in those lives of quiet desperation. That the trick is to allow yourself to be with or look at or feel uh, all that stuff that you would rather not uh, try to deal with. And that that's that There's a trick there that allows for a um, more satisfying, more fulfilling life, said the Buddha. And the psychoanalysts that came along 2,000 years later said sort of the same thing, you know, deal with the unconscious. So
1: I have been in therapy. I've tried meditation. Um, I've read a lot of self-help books. Um. Your book, I find to be completely fascinating because it's literally like you took the organic table from Buddha and the organic table from classical Western ideas of psychotherapy and you melded the two. And so in your own words, tell us the best elements of the Buddha and tell us the best elements of what you find to be therapeutic in the West.
2: Well, the best elements of the Buddha, the Buddha taught this particular kind of meditation, which is not transcendental meditation. It's not like when your mind wanders, you bring it back to the breath or to the mantra or whatever. But you learn to open your awareness to everything that arises, pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. That's what has come to be called mindfulness. Um, uh, uh, Therapy uh, brings something very similar you know freud's instruction to physicians practicing psychoanalysis was uh, suspend judgment and give impartial attention to everything there is to observe and then he called dreams the royal road to the unconscious so freud in a way discovered interpersonally a kind of meditation he didn't know about eastern thought Although there were people in his sphere who were beginning to translate Buddhist uh, teachings and uh, were followers of Hindu gurus and so on. But Freud came upon it himself through um, doing cocaine and uh, looking at his own dreams. But he came upon a very similar mental approach and analytic attitude is what the psychoanalysts call it. But if you read Freud and you read the Buddha and you don't know who's who, they can sound very similar, if not the same.
1: Let me put it. Let me put it differently. Uh, our conscience is how much of a, the overall thing that's going on in our mind. Is it ten percent? Is it fifteen percent? I mean, there seems to be a very deep sea of subconsciousness. Do I have that right?
2: Yeah, you're asking about about consciousness or about or about con- conscience, like a.
1: Yeah, I'm asking about. Conscience. I'm asking about conscience. I'm asking about we are. Yeah. subconscious and then we are conscious right we have oh yeah and well, so i'm saying how de- the mind seems to be very very complex we're awake and we're dealing with a portion of our mind but while we're asleep there seems to be a whole other bandwidth happening
2: well no one understands sleep and dreams yet even the even the neurobiologists and psychiatrists who focus on that it's still a mystery dreams is dreams are a complete mystery really But uh, consciousness is also a complete mystery. Uh, You know, we, as mammals, as human beings, we we have this very strange ability to be both subject and object to our own experience. You know, we have our thoughts, uh, we have our feelings, but we're also aware, conscious of our thoughts and feelings. We can be both at the same time. So meditation plays on that. It... It takes advantage of what the psychoanalysts call it a therapeutic split in the ego, where you can be both, uh, you know, yourself and then observing yourself. Meditation takes advantage of that and it accentuates the observing ego. It trains the mind to watch itself so that you start to get beneath the superficial aspects of the mind. You know, that which is counting and worrying and measuring and making lists and planning and remembering, and it opens up a deeper, I would say, more intuitive uh, aspect of the mind. And I try to show that in the book by, uh, oh, know, how I mean. am I trying to do that in therapy for people, getting them over themselves or past their defensive organizations into uh, a, l- a little more mystery about, them, about themselves.
1: Thing you talk about in the book is the ego and the limiting factor that the ego plays in our well-being. And and I guess, how do you let go of and how do you reshape the ego?
2: Well, we all need the ego. So a lot of people misunderstand the uh, spiritual teachings, you know, that we're supposed to rise above the ego or get rid of the ego. If you get rid of the ego too quickly or too completely, you become psychotic or else super anxious, like filled with panic. So we don't want to get rid of the ego. We need the ego. But a lot of people are stuck in their egos. They think they are only their egos. They, they live their lives, you know, as I was saying before, counting, measuring, comparing, preparing, uh, uh, looking over their shoulder at what is the next threat. That, you know, the, the, the ego is there to to uh, help us to mediate between uh, inner experience and outer experience. Um, if, you, uh, if you didn't have an ego, you'd be helpless in this world. But uh, to have a more flexible ego, to be able to give yourself experiences where the ego goes to sleep, so to speak. You know, um, I, I wrote a book called Going to Pieces Without Falling Apart. Where I tried to distinguish between integration, ego integration, where you're, you know, like a functional person, and uh, disintegration, where you're falling apart, and unintegration. Unintegration is when the ego, like, loses its priority. You know, it takes a back seat. Uh, uh, and the example that's often used is after intercourse, when you know everything is just like, okay, it's. it's uh, you're sated, you're not reaching for anything, but you're very uh, conscious, you know, still, and uh, in your feeling body. So that's a that's a kind of egoless state that's available to most people in their normal lives.
1: Witness mind. Mm -hmm. Tell us about the witness mind and tell us about the work that you've done and the suggestions that you make to your patients related to getting themselves in the witness mind?
2: Well, the witness mind is what meditation is um, cultivating. Uh, And it's also what I I think psychotherapy at its best is cultivating so that someone who comes, say, for therapy, who's uh, very preoccupied with their hurt feelings And they just want to talk about how aggrieved they are and how angry they are. Uh, But they have no perspective. They have no perspective on uh, the way that they're reinforcing their own distress and the way they're blaming, searching to blame, rather than taking any kind of responsibility for what happened. The, The witness mind allows people to relativize or contextualize their suffering. So they're not just like completely stuck in what they're feeling, they're also able to observe what they're feeling. Uh, I have a um, longtime meditation teacher, a guy named Joseph Goldstein, who founded a big retreat center in Massachusetts. And uh, he always says, it's not what you're experiencing that's so important or that matters, it's how you relate to it that matters. So the witness mind gives you a little more play, gives you a little more freedom to relate to your experience in a, in a, a way of your choice, rather than you being completely uh, uh, victimized by whatever it is that you're thinking or feeling.
1: How does meditation affect a person's brain?
2: Um, there's all kinds of uh, there's all kinds of research about that. It's a very popular thing now in the field of neurobiology. Um, I've I started out in those fields working with a lot of the pioneers in uh, psychophysiology, and I've veered away from that uh, because uh, the American uh, scientific materialists need to prove that there's a change in the brain in order to uh, validate meditation sort of rubbed me the wrong way. Um, so I'm not the best person to ask anymore about what the latest research is. Uh, it's clear that um, a- a meditation does make changes in the brain. And there are people like uh, Richard Davidson at the University of uh, Wisconsin and Jud Brewer at uh, was at Yale, now at Brown who uh, are documenting those changes by putting meditators into PET scans and and looking at which areas uh, light up. And it does seem that the sort of trigger responses that come from deep in the brain from the amygdala, uh, where people get uh, taken over by their like road rage, or uh, one of my patients who's a big poker player told me that uh, there's an expression in poker that somebody goes on tilt, when they start losing and then they start tipping they're trying so hard to win that other experienced poker players can see that their uh, you know their emotional uh, self is uh, uh, running wild and so that they, they lose more and more so that meditation would uh, get in the way of those kinds of uh, 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 panic reactions that's the hope
1: doesn't you, always work when you meet a patient and they come to you and they have various levels of this Distress, marital woes, maybe biological depression, or they have some anxiety about their job or their career or their family members. Uh, take us through the process of how you are analyzing them. And then when you start to shift your gears to offer them potential therapeutic ideas, um, because I'm sure after reading the book and looking at your case studies, it's sort of custom made and bespoke for each person. But take us through the template. You have to cut the suit somewhere, so to speak. So, where are you yeah, cutting so, it, and how?
2: Well, the the sort of the first the first important thing about being a therapist is um, not to interfere. So, when someone comes in, the first thing I'm going to do is be quiet. Although. I, I could talk a lot when someone comes in, if, if I sense they're too nervous and I need to settle them down, then, then I'll just be like, you know, where do you live and uh, what's bringing you here and so on. But really what I'm trying to do is to listen with all of myself to feel out who this person is and what, is, what their issue is, like what's making them come to see me, you know, in a therapy office. Uh, Etc. So, um, in my own therapy, what, you know, I always wanted therapists who were going to be real, and were going to be themselves, and weren't going to hide behind the blank screen of you know, the neutrality of the classic psychoanalyst. So, so I try to do this difficult thing of being like completely myself, but also not intruding on the space, so that I can. Try to feel out as I'm saying what's going on with this person. So um, I'll just have them come in, sit down. What's making you come here today? Like tell me your tell me your story. And um, the the first important thing is to create a therapeutic alliance, quote unquote, which means that they they have to like me and I have to like them. Um, and if I feel like that's not happening, then um, I probably will. Uh, refer them elsewhere but if i feel like oh this is a person who um, you you know i see something in them uh, then i'll start encouraging them to tell me more but all the time i'm looking for where they're having difficulty uh, talking to me looking at me uh, uh, speaking to me telling me their story and as we get more comfortable with each other i'll start to focus on uh, uh, what I start to feel are their particular ways of avoiding something, avoiding me, avoiding their feelings, avoiding taking responsibility for something that they've done, that Buddhist thing of difficult to face. So what is it that's difficult for this person to face? Or another way to say it would be, to what are they clinging? That, that's how I phrased it in the book. You know, uh, Everybody clings to something.
1: Yeah, yeah, so let, let's talk about that because I mean, so we talk about clinging. Sometimes we cling to our own self narrative. Sometimes we cling to a trauma that happened to us that we can not dig ourselves out of. We both know that uh, people that experience childhood traumas could have self esteem issues or replicate or sort of downward shift those traumas onto their children. How do you yeah, break the cycle their or, their, or, or partners. their partners? They start yeah. to the replicate and manifest. Um, there, there's lots of different inheritances, Mark, right? There's money inheritances. There's the gene pool. I mean, not all of us could be as good looking as John Darcy, but, you know, you're getting a gene a genetic inheritance, but then you're also getting an emotional inheritance, right? You're getting a channel of tra- trauma yeah. that comes down generationally. How do you break the cycle of that, sir? Um
2: it- unfortunately my my answers are all going to be the same with these questions the way the way you break the cycle is through awareness so but um but sometimes the therapist uh, can make an intervention can help you see something that you couldn't see on your own that's why you can't just like solve all your problems by uh, you know, sitting on a meditation cushion, or analyzing your own dreams, or, you know, going on a long walk in the countryside, sometimes it takes another person to show you what you're refusing to be aware of. So, in the cases of, like, early trauma that you're talking about, usually, the, the you know, the post-traumatic stress thing is, these feelings are too intense for me to deal with, I'm not going to deal with them, so I'm going to shut them away, you know. And then they're not going to bother me, and that works for a while. But then you know, you know, the the uh, veteran hears a car backfiring and thinks it's uh, gunshots and starts to get panicked, or the um, uh, the person who, as a child, was was um, screamed at or beaten too much hears someone yelling or gets into a fight with their spouse, and suddenly they go into a rage or into a panic. So. Um, Therapy is a safe place. Uh, we uh, call it a relational home, uh, a place where feelings that haven't been able to be processed or digested or metabolized can start to reveal themselves and be slowly decontaminated, slowly detoxified, slowly digested through the process of awareness. And um, that's, you, you do that little by little, because if it's too much, the person freaks out and uh, gets more anxiety rather than less. But in a safe relationship, which is what we're trying to do as, uh, as therapists, that, that process really works.
1: Let me turn it over to John Dorsey, who's itching to ask questions. And this is free therapy for me and John Dorsey. Keep going, John. What do you have to say to Mark?
0: Yeah. Dr. Epstein, it's a pleasure to have you on. Um, the, the thing that really fascinates me about you is that intersection between West and East, is that people think of those two philosophies as very distinct from each other. Uh, that in order to tackle our problems, you either need to take a Freudian psychotherapy type approach, which you alluded to earlier, or uh, go down a fully Eastern path of Buddhism and and self-awareness, uh, through those means, those spiritual means, but you sort of bring all of that together into your philosophy. So how does, how does that work for you and why do other people see it distinctly? And and how do you meld those two together, uh, to create sort of a unified approach to unlocking the best versions of yourself?
2: Well, the thing that's strange about me or peculiar to my experience is that, um, I, I went like intensely and deeply into the Buddhist side in my 20s before I decided to become a psychiatrist and before I knew very much about anything else so uh, I did a lot of meditation retreats I traveled to Asia and met my teachers teachers uh, I really you know understood I got as much of the Buddhist psychological side as I was able to uh, at that time and then um, I, I came to being a therapist by way of medical school uh, and becoming a psychiatrist and I was one of only I think two people in my medical school class who wanted to be a psychiatrist you know um, but the thing about doing it that way is that they don't really teach you very much about how to be a therapist when when you're when you're a doctor they just uh, you know like in dermatology or uh, Uh, or so on. You watch someone do a procedure and then you try your hand at it. In psychiatry, they just like, okay, you're the psychiatrist now. So go in the room with the patient and uh, do therapy, you know, figure it out, Um, figure it out. So I had my meditation training to draw on and my own experience as a patient in therapy to draw on. So I could imitate my therapist or, and, or I could try to apply The same kind of attention that i had learned to uh, give to my own mind to my patient's mind and and experience and that was all i really knew how to do but it turned out that that was the therapeutic thing to do you know and that in fact i had been better trained because i had done all that work on myself than than many of the other people who wanted to be therapists so That's the first thing, the the quality of attention that one brings to another person's experience, you know, I'm really not thinking about myself at all when I'm sitting with a patient and, you know, which is such a delight, you know, to be free of myself for that period of time. And I can really give my attention to someone and then I can start to pick out, oh, where is this person hiding? You know, what, what's, what's going on? Where are they tensing up? You know, the way a a body worker would feel where the muscle tensions are, and you know, and supposedly that there's emotional pain hidden in those muscle tensions. Well, I think a, a good therapist is sort of doing something like that, but uh, psychically, you you know, feeling where the where the tension is, where the uh, where the difficulties are, and then slowly and improvisationally, creatively trying to bring that into the awareness of the other. Um, so that's, uh, for a long time, I, I um, didn't want to say how the Buddhist uh, uh, influence was affecting me, because I didn't want to be making a workbook of, you know, mindfulness-based uh, uh, psychotherapy. But, but I decided in writing this book, I would try to tease it out a little bit. So um, that's what I've been attempting to describe with, without uh, uh, being too concrete about it, you know, how to bring a Buddhist sensibility into a psychotherapy practice.
0: Right. You write a lot about, and you and Anthony talked about it briefly earlier, about how the ego is really the limiting factor in our well-being. But not, you know, you don't want to strip away the ego. The ego exists for a reason. But you need to work to reshape it. There's a big movement. It feels to me like there's a big movement that's swelling in society today around psychedelics, around micro dosing, even macro dosing, people using psychedelics in medical settings uh, to help sort of break down the ego in order to confront these you know, traumas or, or issues that are causing the underlying anxiety or addiction or, or post-traumatic stress. So how do you, and I don't know whether you have an opinion on the psychedelic space or not, but what is your view on how psychedelics,
2: what would you say? I have opinions on most things.
0: Yeah, yeah, I can imagine. Um, But just the psychedelic space is fascinating to me. How, How much do you think that's valuable for people? to explore psychedelic treatments, and do you think it's going to become a larger part of treatment regimens for these types of medical, um, you know, mental health issues that really confound most of the Western medical world?
2: Well, it's super interesting to me because I was around for the last go-round of of psychedelics as a, you know, potential uh, therapeutic uh, uh, endeavor um and i saw you know late 60s early 70s into the late 70s i saw um so many people opening up you know their consciousness uh turning towards meditation uh, prayer eastern thought etc because of their psychedelic experiences i saw how it could be a a, a wonderful opening thing and i saw how uh, um uh, uh, how destructive it could be, you know, how, how people uh, mistook their psychedelic experiences for, um, oh, they were really transforming their personalities, but they were the same, you, you know, difficult abusive people uh, who had had far out uh, LSD experiences, but it didn't really fundamentally change them. Um, and I saw a lot of people who uh, tricked themselves into thinking Oh, yes, I'm, I have a great understanding, but they hadn't really done the work to transform themselves in their regular lives. So now it's like 50 years later, and it's, uh, it's coming around again, and it's very interesting. I, I think people are uh, trying to do it a little more carefully this time by doing guided uh, sessions with uh, quote-unquote experienced uh, therapists or shamans or guides, making it more interior rather than just a party experience. Um, and uh, I think a lot of people are going to have legitimate uh, and interesting uh, opening experiences, and I think we'll see a lot of damage also. Um, so, uh, you know, hold, hold on tight is what I would say.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we have, a, Anthony and I have a good friend named Christian Angermeyer, who's a prominent German investor. Uh, he created a company called Atai Life Sciences, and they're, they're doing a lot in the psychedelic space. And he is very uh, quick to emphasize the fact that these need to be done in highly supervised scientific settings. So, you know, I, I think you're right on that front is that, you know, where a lot of it was recreational. I'm sure there was some self-medicating going on uh, in the 60s. Uh, but, you know, it's it's interesting to see the real medical focus of the current movement around, okay, how do we take people that are not responding to any traditional Western treatments, whether it be SSRIs or psychotherapy or things of that nature, how do we peel back the layers of the ego that allow us to really, you know, do the surgery, um, to, to help people heal in a more lasting way. Um, there's,
2: there's interesting work being done with ketamine, for instance, which, uh, um, when I, when I was in medical school, there was, uh, Uh, One psychiatrist at Harvard Medical School named Lester Grinspoon, who was the expert on marijuana and and other psychedelics. And um, I did an an independent study with him in 1979, I think it was, where I wrote a paper for him on ketamine because ketamine was just coming in. John Lilly, who you might not remember, John Lilly, who talked to the dolphins um, and invented the uh, isolation tank. He got very into ketamine in, in those years, and it was starting to be in the, the circles that I was uh, 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 running in. People were interested in it. So now, now I've, I've heard from patients you know, uh, just what you were saying, that the low-dose ketamine clears away the sort of ruminating, uh, uh, obsessive mind and allows for some some kind of emotional opening that. Whether it's lasting or not, I I don't think that enough research has been done, but um, it doesn't seem to be hurting people.
0: Right. So you and Anthony talked about trauma earlier and about how trauma, especially early childhood or adolescent trauma, really informs a lot of our psychology for the rest of our lives. But, you know, we as humans uh, are the product of millions of years of evolution, right? Uh, Survival instinct and trauma you know as as you write about informs our own sense of empathy and compassion and humanity you know why is trauma really an important part of us as humans uh, and how does it help inform the way we go out into the world uh, basically
2: well i think there's no avoiding trauma that's the that's the thing like we traumas come into uh, uh, our general conversation through like what what we call big T trauma, you know, like the veterans coming back from war, earthquakes and, and fires, murder, uh, and so on. Uh, so not everyone, uh, uh, thank goodness, is going to experience that kind of trauma. But there's a whole other kind of trauma that's often called called um, little T or developmental or relational trauma, which is more like the trauma that happens to young children growing up when nothing happens when maybe something should have happened, you know, like the kind of trauma of of neglect, or sometimes the trauma of a a mother's depression or a father's alcoholism or parents' divorce. Um, the, The tendency in those situations is for the young child to take too much responsibility for the pain that's around them, because we're all, especially when we're younger, we're all very egocentric. And we tend to see what happens around us as our fault. So I, I tell a lot of stories in the book of uh, people who have come to me, you know, castigating themselves, blaming themselves, uh, feeling that they need to be healed for uh, um, situations that they really didn't cause, but but were inadvertently born born into. So that's something that uh, a good therapy uh, can really help people with, to begin to let go of that sense of responsibility for uh, for traumas that were not their fault. Um, But uh, uh, to understand that trauma really runs through all of our experience. You, You know, we all face the specter of, as I was saying before, Old age, illness, death, loss, separation, COVID—you know that that kind of thing. We're all we're all vulnerable to it, and we all know it. So there's a slight traumatic undercurrent that we're all trying to fend off.
0: Right. And another thing you write about, and I think this sort of embodies this uh, fusion of East and West that I think really defines you is the notion that the psychological, the emotional, and the spiritual. Are are all really heavily intertwined. Is that you can't you can't separate those from each other. How distinct are those, and and why do you think that they're also uh, intertwined and important to each other?
2: Well, you know, I I had a conversation with my father um, before he died. My 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 father was a, um, a a scientist. He was chairman of the department of medicine at one of the Harvard hospitals. Never talked to me about the spiritual uh, stuff that I was interested in, but um, he died when he was 84 of a malignant brain tumor. The same brain tumor that Ted Kennedy and John McCain had, only it, it came on the non-dominant side of his brain. So cognitively he was totally intact, but uh, he got lost. got He got lost driving home from work one day, you know. So it affected his sense of direction and his sense of balance. We had never talked about anything spiritual. Uh, but he knew that he was going to die soon, and I knew that he was going to die soon. And I thought, Oh no! <laughs> like I've never tried to talk to my father. What if there's something I've picked up from the, my spiritual life that might help him, uh, you know, in the process of dying? So I uh, uh, I called him up from my office and. And I said, "I know you don't believe in any of this stuff, but we, you know, we've never really talked about any of it. But are you interested at all in what the Buddhists say about what happens when you die?" And uh, he was very nice. He's like, "Oh, sure, tell me, you know." Uh, so, I, but I needed to talk to him in language that wasn't uh, new age or spiritual in any way. So I did my best, and I said something like. You know that feeling where you've always been you, like when you're 20 years old or 40 years old or 60 years old or 80 years old, from the inside you're always you. It doesn't seem that different. But if you try to put your finger on that feeling, like it's hard to find, it's sort of transparent, you know, like where are you? You know. But what the what the Buddhists seem to say is that when you're dying, you can learn how to relax your awareness into that kind of transparent space where you've always been who you are, you know? Let go of everything else. Lay down in that space, so to speak, and you can ride out uh, the you, the loss of the body. You can ride that out through that space in your mind or in your heart, wherever that feeling is, you know? And, uh, and my father was like, OK, darling, I'll try. You know, but that was like for a for my own father, you know, scientific materialist, physician, like the emotional, the psychological, the spiritual, you know, w- when are they going to intertwine at the moment of death, if not before, you know. So, but uh, some version of that is present for everybody, you know, even when they're dealing with uh, more day-to-day kinds of problems. Right.
0: Well, it's a beautiful story, and thank you for sharing it. Um, What suggestions do you have? You know, we have people of all different walks that that listen to our show uh, and we try to bring them a a variety of content that helps enrich their lives in different ways. And so one thing that we want to do is always provide people actionable advice is let's say somebody, you know, is, is experienced anxiety or depression or, um, you know, just, just the general nagging desperation of, of daily life as Anthony alluded to earlier How would you suggest somebody gets into meditation or therapy or learning about Buddhism in a way that can inform this spirituality, uh, that can give them a little bit more peace and balance?
2: Well, the the first thing I would say is don't don't neglect the the Western therapeutic uh, modalities. Okay, the the drugs work sometimes and when they work, they're they're a huge blessing okay if you have panic attacks there's medicine for that low dose medicine really helps if you have a clinical depression you know if you're having suicidal thoughts there's medicine for that and the medicine works and it's a blessing if you've had a baby and you have a you might be depressed and you don't know that you know but you're not like feeling so great you might have a postpartum depression and the drugs work uh if you're having uh, anxiety, or or relationship issues, or you're still pissed off at your parents uh, who are annoying you, um, then uh, therapy th- therapy is an underutilized resource in our in, in most of this country. You know, maybe not in New York, but uh, but really everywhere else. So it's there's no shame in seeing a therapist. Um, and then in terms of meditation, uh, I think it's really important to say up front that meditation's not for everybody, okay? It really is not for everybody. It makes some people super anxious. You know, they just can't sit still. They can't watch their own minds. not right for them. Those people might be better playing tennis or going for a long walk or, you know, going skiing or for a hike or something. But uh, I think what's what's valuable about meditation uh, in the larger sense is that you're taking time out from your usual preoccupations, your usual self preoccupations to just let the world come into your, uh, in, into your mind in, in a different way. So even going for a 20 minute walk might be as good as sitting down on the cushion and trying to watch your mind for 20 minutes. Um, for people who are predisposed to meditation, who for whatever reason are drawn to it the way I was, it's very available now. There's, you know, there are. You can uh, listen to Dan Harris on 10% Happier, and uh, he has all of my meditation teachers, who I introduced him to, uh, recording meditation instruction in the studio. So you don't even have to go on a retreat. You can get good instruction, you know, on your on your phone. Uh, um, and if it's right for you, you'll like it, and then you can you can follow it up.
0: Yeah, I mean, one of the exciting things for me is, you know, I, uh, I've tried to get deep into meditation, it's never really stuck with me as a a habit that I practice. But there's so many, uh, from a technology perspective, technology can be our undoing, or it can be the solution to a lot of our problems. And it's really exciting to see companies emerging in the space that are offering meditation solutions on your phone, you know, quick bite-sized uh, practices that you can engage in, or something like Talkspace, which provides access to therapy for people that might not have access to it. In New York City, like you said, the, the per capita uh, rate of therapists in New York City, probably a little bit higher than it is in places like middle America. So it's it's fun to see technology coming around and, and helping address some of these issues. So uh, The, the,
2: the other thing that's fun. happening, the other thing that's happening, I think, you know, I, uh, where meditation came alive for me was on these silent meditation retreats that I would go to for a week or two weeks, where you just try to be uh, attentive to what's happening in the present moment, you know, for the entire day. But I think in uh, that sort of uh, retreat experience, it doesn't have to be so uh, austere as the ones that I've been to. But the um, the the psychedelic. Uh, uh, um, Uh, experiences that you were talking about before a lot of people are starting to build these retreat centers that are like part spa part um, you know like yoga retreat part meditation retreat and part guided psychedelic journeying and I think we're going to see more and more of that as people seek relief from the uh, day-to-day stresses of their lives you know um, and as travel becomes more difficult, uh, if COVID persists, I think that these kind of contained environments where you can go, you can really travel in, in your mind, right. um, I think that's going to be more, more popular and available.
0: Well, your, your comment there uh, led me to one more question that I want to ask you before we let you go, which is uh, the pandemic. So there's certainly a lot been made, you know, we've we've made the decision to uh, put certain mitigation steps into place to prevent uh, large scale death. You know, sadly, we've, we've had almost a million people in, in the country, uh, probably die of COVID related illnesses. Uh, but it's also taken a, a mental health toll on a lot of people, you know, on, on young people, there's more and more coming out about how being pulled out of school or separated from your friends has had an impact. What observation have you made about the mental health toll that the pandemic has taken on people, and and how would you uh, you know if you were running the country or you were a public health official, how would you balance the sort of you know what people think of as public health or, or health related issues related to COVID? Balance that between the mental impact that it's had on people.
2: I think we're we're just beginning to reckon with the the mental health effects of of this pandemic, which isn't over. You know, so uh, I think it's going to be uh, a, a uh, it's going to be unfolding for a long time, and, and uh, careers will be made and books will be written uh, about w- what uh, the entire population of the world has experienced on an emotional level, and um, uh, I think the 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 one thing that technology is making possible, and you mentioned this before is um, that, that uh, uh, the face-to-face psychotherapy uh, doesn't need to be the only way that that therapy is offered to people anymore. That, uh, you know, I, I wrote my book, which was a, a year's worth of face-to-face psychotherapy sessions in the year before COVID. I didn't know that COVID was coming. Um, since then, I've been doing all of my therapy on the telephone or on the computer. And it's a very different experience, but I don't think it's any worse in terms of the help that people are getting. So, so I think to uh, uh, if if the population could open up to that, therapy is not something to be ashamed of, but is uh, an important uh, a resource uh, for suffering individuals. That uh, there's a lot of help that that can be gained from it
0: yeah I think just like education, you know I think we learned a lot about how we can scale quality education using technology during the pandemic. I think we're just at the beginning stages of figuring out how we can scale quality you know mental health treatment and and things like therapy uh, and meditation through technology. So that's exciting to see. But dr. Epstein, it's been it's been a pleasure to have you on. Uh, anthony, i'll I'll leave the final word to you.
2: Thanks a lot. Well, I'm going to encourage
1: everybody, uh, all the SALT uh, listeners and subscribers uh, to read this, The Zen of Therapy, Uncovering the Hidden Kindness of Life. I felt better after reading it, Doc, so I'm sure a lot of other people will as well. It's just, at the end of the day, there's a uh, it's great wisdom in your words, uh, and we appreciate the contribution that you're making to everybody. Thank you.
2: Thank you, Anthony. I tried to I tried to make the 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 writing of the book and therefore the reading of the book so, somehow uh, reflect what the feeling might be in a in a good therapy experience. So, um, well, so you know,
1: it's, it's it's about awareness, self-coaching, getting yourself in the right frame of mind, practicing good habits, you know, and not overreacting, you know, ultimately. Yeah, I mean, I'm not to oversimplify life, but it's really a battle with yourself more than anything else.
2: Yeah. Yeah.
1: Uh, And how you adjust to what is happening to you and your, you know, listen, nobody picks their family of origin doc, at least I'm not aware of that. You know, no one picks their genetic makeup. So you're here. Those are your people. Let's figure it out. Best for capability. You know?
0: Yeah.
1: That's ultimately what it's
2: about. Thank you.
0: Well, thank you again, Dr. Epstein, and thank you everybody for tuning in to today's uh, episode of SALT Talks with Dr. Mark Epstein. Just a reminder, if you miss any part of this talk or any of our previous talks, our episodes are available on demand, uh, on video, and on podcast on our website at salt.org backslash talks, or any app that you use to consume podcasts. Uh, Our YouTube channel as well hosts all of our videos. It's called SALT Tube. Um, We're also on social media. Twitter is where we're most active at SALT Conference. We're also on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook as well. Please feel free to share your thoughts on this episode or any of our other episodes and spread the word about these SALT Talks. We love bringing on guests like Dr. Epstein that are you know, unique within the subset of uh, talks that we have covering topics that, again, we think help enrich people's lives and, and help them operate uh, as the best versions of themselves personally and professionally. But on behalf of Anthony and the entire SALT team, this is John Darcy signing off from SALT Talks for today. We hope to see you back here again soon.